I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. Welcome to the Big Biology Podcast. Today, we're talking with Dennis Noble, Emeritus Professor of Biology at Oxford University. Dennis describes a radical new view of causality in biology. In our conversation, we get into the details of several of his ideas about biological complexity, including what DNA actually does, what besides DNA we inherit from one generation to the next, and how randomness can be harnessed to carry out useful functions. Before we get into it, uh, just a few comments on the structure of our podcast. Uh, for each conversation with a guest, we're going to release two versions of the recording. One of the versions will be long, uh, a lightly edited version of the entire raw conversation, and that's what you'll get in the rest of this podcast. Uh, we'll also release a much more compressed version that hits just the highlights and lasts for just five to ten minutes. If you want a short version of our conversation with Dennis, you can find it on our website. We're here with Dennis Noble, and uh, Dennis has a, a book that's come out recently called Dance to the Tune of Life. Um, we'll be spending a lot of time talking about the, the material in that book. Uh, Dennis, correct me if I'm wrong, but that sort of extension and, and uh, development of ideas that were in a book uh, that came out a few years prior called The Music of Life, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that one too. Um, wow, we have so many different items to get to. Uh, I think we'll just maybe jump right in and um, first set the table by asking you, as a, to my knowledge, relatively classically trained physiologist, what led you to turn the corner and, and start thinking more about evolutionary biology? Can you imagine that I was the examiner of Richard Dawkins in 1966? Wow! <laughs> and that was because he was working with the very distinguished ethologist Nico Tinbergen. Incidentally, mm -hmm. the only ethologist ever to get the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine. And the reason he did that is that Nico Tinbergen made a very important point, which was that behavior is just as much an evolutionary characteristic as structure and function. And that led, of course, to many of the developments in behavioral um, biology. And um, Richard Dawkins was working under him to do his doctorate uh, using time sequences. That's working out how long an animal does this, that, the other, and so on. And you can analyze those with a particular bit of mathematics. This gets slightly technical. It happens to be called Laplace transforms. But don't worry about that. The important part of this story is that I was thought in those days, because I was deep into mathematical modeling, to be almost the only biologist in the university who could cope with a bit of advanced mathematics. <laughs> so... They got an ethologist from outside the university to be, as it were, the scientist from the field, and I was asked to cope with the mathematics. Now, I'll tell you a little secret. I actually didn't know very much about Laplace transforms, so I went out and bought a book on it, and I've never regretted that. Now, 10 years later, a selfish gene comes out. 1976, 10 years later, I organized the first debate on the selfish gene in Oxford. So there's my credentials. Goes back forty odd years. Okay, <laughs> excellent. Wow. So was it something particular about the material in, in the selfish gene that that motivated you to you know to write the book and, and many papers? And that's that's quite a lot of of output given the uh, experiences. I can give you chapter and verse on what the problem was. The debate was actually involving two scientists, Richard Dawkins and me, as the scientists, and two philosophers very famous Canadian philosopher called Charles Taylor, who was in Oxford at that time, and a very famous British philosopher, Tony Kenny, Anthony Kenny. And Richard gave a brilliant 10-minute summary of the selfish gene. I have to give Richard this. His writing is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. He is yeah. so convincing. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, what happened then was that Tony Kenny simply said, I don't need 10 minutes. I've only got one question for you, Richard. And that is, if all I knew of the English language was the letters of the alphabet, I would not thereby be allowed to say that I could understand Shakespeare. 
Now, that's a trite remark, but that wasn't the point, of course. It was really to find out what Richard Dawkins would say. So Richard said, and I remember this absolutely clearly, he said it many times since, you know, I'm not a philosopher. I'm a scientist. I'm only interested in truth. Now, I don't know what your listeners will think of that, but what I thought was, well, actually, there was somebody in the audience who was a French person who butted in and said, what is truth? (laughs) (laughs) I thought, well, yes, that's the problem. And of course, from there on, I I, I started to go through the selfish gene of the book and started dissecting it. And what I found is as you dissect it and you work out what it actually means, you find that it can be deconstructed. I do that in my new book. There's a whole section, one of the chapters, that deconstructs what I see to be the misleading characteristics of neo-Darwinist thought. And I think most of those come from misuse of metaphor. And selfish gene is that. How can a bit of DNA sequence be selfish? You know, you and I can be selfish. I'm certainly selfish sometimes. (laughs) Can, Can a simple molecule? Well, it's not a very simple molecule, I know. But anyway, can any molecule be selfish? I don't, I know I'm, I'm partly joking here, but but there is a serious point behind it. I think it's the misuse of a metaphor. Right. Okay. And that's a perfect segue into the, the sort of let's talk about the book and art. You have had. I think you wanted to extend this idea about what does DNA do. Yeah, I think you know what one of your big points in the book is that um, there's there's many other things besides DNA and DNA sequences that are inherited, and I think. Yeah. You know, for our, lis- our for our listening public, that's maybe an important point to to deconstruct a bit because I think just just like many molecular biologists have have come to believe that that DNA is the the computer program or the blueprint of life, I think the public accepts that as well. They've sort of absorbed that from the sciences over the last fifty years, and yet you have this alternative point of view. So maybe maybe lay out that alternative point of view. Yes, very quickly, um, we all inherit, of course, a complete cell formed by the fusion of the cell from the father, the sperm, and the egg from the mother. So it's fairly obvious in one sense that we must be inheriting more than DNA because that cell is vastly more than DNA. You know, if I represented the cell um, by... Uh, imagining that a molecule is about the size of my fist, that's a huge expansion in size, of course, but it gives an idea. You know, the edge of the cell would be way up in Scotland. I'm down in the south of England. That tells you something very important. At a molecular level, the dimensions of a cell are huge. Moreover, it's packed with stuff. It's packed with little bits of pieces here, there, and everywhere. We call them big names, of course, mitochondria, ribosomes, and so on. And what are most of those composed of? Of course, proteins, which are indeed um, uh, using the DNA as templates to form them. But the great majority of it, otherwise, is membranes. What are membranes made of? Lipids, cholesterol, and goodness knows how many other molecules, none of which is coded for by DNA. So it's obvious. If you do the calculations, I've done that. You can show there's as much information there as there is in the part of the genome that is used to make proteins. Mm-hmm. So is that information that's uh, extra genetic, that's not in the DNA, is it faithfully transmitted from one cell to the next, one generation to the next? Well, it has to be. We inherit the whole cell. One sense is obvious, isn't it? But I think what you're really getting at is a slightly different question, which is this. If you change that, does that get inherited? Mm-hmm. In the way in which if you change a bit of DNA, mutate it, that does get inherited. Now, there are various ways in which you can demonstrate that. Beautiful experiment done by some scientists in the Fish Institute in China, in Wuhan. What they did was to take two completely different species of fish. One was a goldfish, the nice crunched up, you know, almost globular fish. There's <laughs> a carp, which is a great long extended fish, right? And what they then did was to take um, 
a fertilized egg cell out of the goldfish. Remember, that's the stubby one. They took the nucleus out. Then they went to the carp and took a nucleus out of the carp and they inserted that nucleus into the fertilized egg cell of the goldfish. What fish would you get as a consequence of that? Most people say it must be a carp. What you get is intermediate. And indeed, the title of their paper is cytoplasmic, that means cellular, effects on, and then, of course, they explain what kinds of effects there are. And what you find is that the intermediate organism that is produced from that cross is um, it's sort of intermediate in anatomy. You can see it just by looking at the fish. It's somewhere between a goldfish and a carp. So we can actually experimentally demonstrate that if you take the cellular inheritance from one species and you combine it with the nuclear inheritance of another, you will get something in between. So, so if we demote... Uh, genes and genomes slightly from being, you know, a, a book of life or a, a blueprint for life and recognize these other forms of inheritance, then then what would you say is the role of, of genes and genome? Um, you know, in, in, in your book, you talk some about Barbara McClintock's take yes. on the genome as being an organ of the cell. And I really love this idea. And it makes it seem like, a, you know, it switches around the causality so that the genome itself is is subservient to this this larger entity that that's controlling and cooperating with it. Is is that a fair characterization? Absolutely, exactly accurate. That's exactly what I say. Now, let's do the following thought experiment. It can't be done at the moment, but I think people can see what I'm going to say is correct. If I could take one of our cells and pull the DNA out as a complete long string, well, actually, because a number of strings from the different chromosomes, but let's imagine we pull it out and we place that very thin thread, because it's incredibly thin, certainly after all, uh, one molecule thick. And we're going to put that into a scientific pot called a Petri dish. It's where you put fluid that will resemble the fluid that occurs in the blood, for example, with the right salts, the right nutrients, and so on. So there you've got the DNA in the pot with nutrients, as many as you wish. I don't mind how much other stuff you put in there. I tell you, I could keep that DNA for 10,000 years. It would do absolutely <laughs> nothing. Now, why is that? You know, what happens is that DNA gets activated. We call these transcription factors that arrive from the cellular networks and which determine how the DNA is expressed. And that's, of course, why our heart cells are different from our bone cells, which are different from our liver cells, and they've all got the same genome. It gets worse. I mean, the same genome in a caterpillar and a butterfly produces two totally different creatures. What's mm. happening there? Again, during the metamorphosis, the signals to the genome to say which gene should be expressed and which not change. And so I would say that the DNA is like a template. Actually, I wasn't the first person to say that. Jim Watson said that. Or was it Craig who said it to Watson? I can't remember which way it was. But one of them said to the other, you know what? This is a template. They got it right the first time. And then they invented the central dogma of molecular biology. Well, you know, <laughs> but let's forgive them for that. The fact is that um, it acts like a template in the sense that, just as with a template, when you want to make a guitar, for example, you want that shape to make the wood be the right shape. So you have a template for that. In a similar way, the genome sequences are used by the machinery that does the reading of the genome to ensure that you get an RNA of the right sequence, which then goes trundling off to a ribosome, which enables that sequence then to be converted into protein. But what activates all of that, what is the active process, is exactly what Barbara McClintock said. It's the rest of the cell that tells the genome what to do. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you just used the word uh, machinery in reference to these cellular parts interacting with, with DNA. And uh, I want to just follow that thread for a moment. I think the word machinery implies a sort of uh, determinism 
about what this cellular machine is doing. And and you've made um, uh, a, a big deal out of the idea that that there's stochasticity in cells and that that can relieve cells from this sort of deterministic fate. So, so can we just talk about that for a moment? And let's let's get into it carefully, maybe. And define, first of all, what is determinism and then what is stochasticity and how does stochasticity lead us out of this deterministic trap? Yes, the deterministic trap was set way back in about 1665 by the French philosopher René Descartes. He wrote in his treatise on the fetus, he was quite a scientist actually, in those days of course he didn't distinguish between scientists. They, they, all, they were all thinkers. Now, what he did is he wrote, you know, almost like the central dogma of molecular biology, he said, if I knew what was in that sperm, that semen, the word he used actually, um, I would be able to predict with certainty, he actually emphasized it mathematically, what would happen, the organism and its actions. That's all the way back 300 odd years ago. Now, you can trace that sequence all the way through to various um, 19th century mathematicians like Laplace, and right the way through to a very important person in this particular discussion, which was Erwin Schrödinger. Now, your listeners may know that he was one of the great physicists in relation to quantum mechanics. He was also very good at relativity. And he wrote a book in 1942 called What is Life? There's a nice big question for you. Now, he correctly predicted, remember 1942, nobody knew the genetic material was DNA. He correctly predicted that when it was found, the DNA would be found to be what he called an aperiodic crystal. And if you think of a linear molecule as being a little like a crystal, aperiodic, because it doesn't completely repeat. There are some repeats, of course, but if it was all repeat, it wouldn't mean very much. And I think he was then thinking very much like a crystallographer. In those days, crystallography was developing very well in biology. And he imagined that like a crystal being observed with x-rays, with diffraction, you could determinately read that aperiodic crystal, which we now know is DNA. Now, he then went on in that book to realize he'd made a mistake. And his mistake was, you know, in physics, um, at the molecular level, you've got stochasticity all over the place. You know, the molecules, the gas molecules in the balloon, for example, are bouncing this way, that way, and everywhere which way. Now, what happens at the level of the balloon? The pressure and the volume and the temperature are determinate. Moreover, if you change the amount of gas and you do various things to it, it's all determinate equations at the level of the whole balloon. You can see where I'm getting at now. The cell is a bit like a balloon. Now, what I'm saying is that he also knew that down at the level of the molecules, there had to be stochasticity. And he wrote himself saying, you know, what I've just said is absurd. Now, I won't bother your audience with the little trick by which he jumped out of this dilemma, but he was responsible for Watson and Crick, then saying, well, formulating what they call the central dogma of molecular biology, which of course is partly the idea that there's coding on only one way, that's correct. The DNA sequences code for RNA sequences, which then code for amino acid sequences, doesn't go the other way. That's absolutely correct. Um, but with regard to determinate readout, what do we actually find when we look at cells in culture? So we've got a large number of cells. We find the expression level of any given protein is hugely variable. It can be varying as much as a thousandfold between one cell and the next. There is massive stochasticity there. Moreover, the copying of the DNA is itself an error-creating process. Every 10,000 or so base pairs, remember there are 3 billion in the whole genome, but every 10,000 or so, normally you get a copying error. 
So the DNA itself doesn't actually reproduce very accurately. If you had those millions of errors in a genome, you wouldn't survive. Now what I come to is this. What happens? The rest of the cell, you can guess what I'm going to say, comes in and it corrects those errors. So much so that usually the copying of DNA from one cell to a daughter cell and down through the generations creates only about one error or even less in a whole genome. So the correction mechanism is superb. Schrodinger didn't know that. So you've got massive stochasticity, both in the way in which DNA functions. There are errors that accumulate in the DNA at quite a high rate. You've got correction of those. And you've also got great stochasticity in the way in which individual genes are expressed in particular cells, in a population of cells. So stochasticity is there, and it's very large. So Dennis, can I'm sorry, Art, if I can interrupt quickly. Um, I, I'm selfishly interested in immunology. And um, I mean, could you speak a little bit about the role of stochasticity in immunology, and especially maybe taking it into another uh, dimension that, that we wanted to make sure that we touch on in, in this section? Um, you say in a talk you I gave guest at Oxford, gave at Oxford in, in 2016, December, that it's functionality that's inherited. Yes. So if you can, put the pieces together of the sort of functional inheritance of stochasticity when it comes to the immune system. Yes, of course, the immune system is a good example of evolution within a population of cells within an individual organism, you or me. But you can apply the same principles to um, inheritance uh, going down the generations. But let's focus now on the immune system. What does it do? It uses stochasticity in the most marvelous way. You see, the, the, the DNA sequence that codes for the protein that enables an attack to be made on the invading, whatever it is, virus or bacterium or any other particle for that matter. Um, what that protein does, it's an immunoglobulin, just to give it its technical name, is this. The immune system keeps the part of the protein that makes it an immunoglobulin, makes it possible to carry out its function of grabbing or latching onto a foreign body, it keeps that constant, and the part of the molecule that could be the kind of key to fit into the lock of the invader and latch onto it and hold it, that bit hypermutates. Hyper means going very rapidly. Now, it doesn't do so just tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold. It does it 100,000 to a millionfold. So what it's doing, it's spinning. And using stochasticity there, now what that does is the different cells that spin um, will produce many, many, many different cells with different immunoglobulins. The system then uses natural selection of those cells. So natural selection comes into it, not denying that, to then allow those cells to reproduce that produced the immunoglobulin that attacks and latches onto and holds the foreign body. The rest are allowed to die. So now, why is that purposive? It's purposive by definition. You see, what you've got there is an environmental challenge, which is the foreign body. You then have signaling from the surface membranes of the cells that detect the foreign body to trigger the hypermutation because it doesn't happen unless there's a trigger. So that part of the system is nicely targeted because it means as you receive the signal as a foreign body, hypermutation occurs. You then have signaling from the rest of the system to effectively say to those cells that fail, and most will, to get a good match, a good key to go into that lock of the invading body, die. And you then reproduce from the cells that produce the right attachment. What then happens, of course, is, as we well know, the foreign body is latched onto. It can be taken in for the cells that clean the body up, the, uh, the, the phagocytes and so on, cells that are, as it were, expert at cleaning the body up, and they get gobble it up. But you've got to lock onto it first. So it uses stochasticity in a beautiful feedback mechanism. If that was in a rocket, you'd call it a guided rocket, wouldn't you? 
Mm -hmm. right? It's not a rocket that's just simply fired and goes anywhere, and you can't, as it were, move it this way or that way. It's clearly guided. But that's what we mean by a functional process. Mm -hmm. I, what I know many of my colleagues who d disagree with me would say, well, but Dennis, it's still mechanism, isn't it? See, yes, but it's guided mechanism. Where does the guidance come from? It comes within the system itself. In a sort of sense, it knows what it's doing. I know that is a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's hard to avoid the view that that is guided. And, you know, if you watch the cells, which we call phagocytes and so on, wandering around and looking for stuff to pick up, to clean up, it's very hard not to think that those cells, they're not like billiard balls just being bounced around in a mechanical way. They, they're feeling this way, sniffing what's come up, going away from it if it isn't what is worth investigating, sending a pseudopodium out to another area, and when they find something that's right, very quickly, walk, they gobble it up. You know, it's a process which if you watch that, you have to say that's a guided process. Now, guidance is not from something right out there, some mysterious spiritual process. It's perfectly simple physiological or engineering, if you like, because engineers can make such guided processes. It's a perfectly simple way in which you end up with functionality, guided functionality, and I would say it's perfectly proper then to use the word that this is a process which goes in a particular direction. Now, that leads me to the point that evolution can use that, and it does. Organisms do choose to go. Now, you use the word choice quite carefully here, because if you watch those phagocytes going around and looking to clean up the body, they're certainly choosing to go that way or that way, depending on what they find. I mean, what do we do when we look around and see what we want to have to eat? You know, we look at what that looks like. The oranges over there are not very good. The apples over here look brilliant. So we buy apples. That's a good description of how I stumble around in the supermarket. I, I'm sort of stochastic, and yet I still can find a pretty good meal if I stumble for long enough. Uh. Well, if then, you give that kind of guidance as a word to us, I think you have to give it to those phagocytes. Yeah. Dennis, I wanted to ask a, a related question about um, molecular stochasticity and uh, take on a really big question. And I, I think I know approximately what your point of view will be about this, but do you think humans have free will? And if so, do, does it arise from this process of molecular stochasticity? That's a huge question, <laughs> and I will do my best with it. Um, it's an area I'm actually seriously working on with philosophers at the moment, because I think this is a conceptual question as much as an empirical one. What I mean by that is, first of all, I'm not totally sure that I'm happy with the word free will. Let me just say briefly why, and then I'll come to the nub of your question. You see... Complete freedom would be useless, wouldn't it? We, we, we don't, I mean, when we're acting freely, we're not really talking about going every which way. Well, I suppose occasionally we do. What you described you doing in the supermarket might come close to that. <laughs> but nevertheless, most of the time, we have some idea of what we want to do and where we go and so on. Already, there are constraints within the logic of our own behavior, within the interaction with other organisms and other humans, um, there's already a lot of constraint within which, if we are free to act in different ways than what we actually chose to do, then um, there's a lot of constraint over that freedom. So I sometimes worry about the simple expression free will. It's not entirely free all over the place. Agreed. When we come to the question you've really asked, could stochasticity be part of the answer? It's a very deep philosophical question, that. And there are philosophers who think you can marry the concept of free action, even with determinism. There are very good examples of that in uh, Western philosophy. I, they may or may not be right. I don't know. don't know how to judge that. But what I do think is this. If you've got stochasticity, you've got a vastly better opportunity for 
how best to put this now, trying out different ways, just as the immune system is, as it were, selecting from that vast panoply of different cells that are produced by the hypermutation process, and selecting out just the ones that work, we can do the same. We can play around. I don't know what goes on in my mind when I sleep and find I've got the solution to a problem the next morning, but I think part of what may be going on is that I'm worrying about it. I go to sleep worrying about it, and, you know, lo and behold, don't solve it the previous night, but the next morning I wake up and think, goodness, I think I can see the way through that. So what was going on there? I don't know exactly. Does anybody know what's happening when you're sleeping? But um, seriously, what I think might be happening is that you, your, your system somewhere up here goes on spinning around. And I think you might be able to develop a theory of free action, what we mean by free action, which I clarified earlier on. I think you might be able to develop a theory of free action out of that. But let's be careful. I don't think this can be done just by scientists alone. I think this is a place where we need the conceptual tools and skills of good philosophers. And you need good scientists, too, to interact with them. That, that's good that you said that because I was just thinking at a, at a more mechanist, a mechanistic level, you know, what we need is for the neurobiologist to tell us how much of our thought process and our memories come out of molecular stochastic effects on the neurons in our brains while we're sleeping. But maybe that's not the way forward in, in resolving this question. I just don't know. I mean, I think that's that those are big open questions. Where would yeah. the stochasticity come from? And there could be many levels at which it might occur. And I don't know yet before we move on to a totally different topic i'm I'm intrigued to maybe challenge you dennis on the uh additional implications of evolution as a directed process um i mean in a general sense or you know it's been fun to talk about free will and, and implications for people in particular so if evolution yeah. is directed why should the general public care i mean how does that change our impression of day-to-day -day lives of people socially economically whatever that might be well, do you know where the greatest use of selfish gene theory has occurred? It's in economics. The equations for which quite a number of Nobel Prizes have been awarded, particularly from the Chicago School of Economics, are very similar to the equations of evolutionary biology. And they're expressing more or less, just to be technical for a moment, this is equations like the price equations, various equilibria. I mean, the Nash equilibrium in, in economics is that kind of approach. We don't get too technical here, but I think it's correct to say that the implications of the use of the equations of evolutionary biology, game theory essentially, in economics have led to very many developments which um, need to be re-examined if you think, as I do, that evolution is not a fully guided process, of course not, but at least partially guided. Because that leads you to a number of ways in which you can see that the interactions between organisms are much more complex than the simple selfish versus cooperative view would suggest. Let me give you one example. Um, both monkeys and dogs can detect cheetahs amongst their number. I don't mean cheetah, the fast-running animal. <laughs> I mean cheetahs. Not playing by the rules. Don't, don't play by the rules. Don't, don't share food properly and so on. They tend to exclude them. Now, there are many ways in which you can think about that. But one way to think about it is that cooperativity is actually more rampant in the interactions between organisms than we might think. This was one of the points that um, Lynn Margulis used to make a lot when she was live um, in a marvelous debate that I chaired back in 2009 between Lynn Margulis and Richard Dawkins. Lynn was the person who championed the idea. She never said that she invented the idea or was the first to demonstrate it, but she championed the idea that many of the components of the cells in our bodies 
eukaryotic cells, to use the technical term, things like mitochondria, ribosomes, and so on, came from the fusion of organisms to produce a form of cooperation that made a real big jump in the evolutionary process. And whatever you say, the emergence of eukaryotes, that's cells in bodies like yours and mine and in plants and in most animals, um, multicellular organisms, those cells have got an extraordinary degree of complexity. Her view was that's come about through symbiosis, that is cooperation between organisms, one organism effectively either ingesting the other, or you could say the other has invaded the first <laughs> one. But, but, but now we come to a matter of language. What do you describe it as? What happens, of course, and what happened in relation to the form, formation of mitochondria, those are the little bits inside our cells that give us energy vastly more efficiently than it would be the case if we didn't have those there, that those were originally bacteria. Can you believe it? Every cell in your and my body has the, in origin, large numbers of bacteria. It's not just in our gut, which, of course, we've got many bacteria that help us to digest our food. But even within the cells themselves, you've got the remnants of bacteria that at one time fused with um, other cells to produce the kinds of cells that we've got in our body. What Lynn Margulis would say, if she were here taking part in this debate, is that um, cooperation is rampant in the way in which evolution has occurred. Well, fair enough. So uh, I do want to maybe change levels a little bit and um, maybe dive back into the more mechanistic uh, side of things and, and really push you on systems biology. Um, it's not exactly an easy topic to talk about. We've already hit on some pretty complicated things, but this one might be among the most daunting. So, um, what do you what do you think about the future of systems biology? I mean, how do you see it coming into play to influence the practice and and the inference we're going to get from biological research in the next several years? Well, molecular biology has been extraordinarily successful at characterizing the components, the molecular components of cells, tissues, organs, and so on. And it's also been spectacularly successful in decoding, or rather sequencing, and getting to know the code, of um, the genetic material called DNA. All of that I would give molecular biology and share from the sidelines. Um, no problem with that at all very, very important discoveries. The difficulty comes back, though, to what I said earlier on about the molecule DNA. And if I put that in a Petri dish with as much fluid and nutrients as you like, it would do absolutely nothing. Now, what makes it do it, we said earlier on, was that the system, now what I mean by the system, I mean the whole cell with its networks of membranes, and many proteins interacting in those membranes and with each other and with many components that are not themselves coded for by DNA, that network operates like, well, I would say a little bit like a kind of computer itself. Now, it may not be a determinate computer. Remember the stochasticity. It may be a stochastic computer. But what it's doing is effectively telling, this is Barbara McClintock's direction of causality, of course, is telling the genome what to do. Now, I regard that study of what tells what, what to do, to be the function of systems biology, the purpose of systems biology, to work out those interactions and be able to find out how it can be that a liver cell gives rise to a liver cell as it divides, and a heart cell to a heart cell, and so on. In other words, how it can be those messages from the system as a whole go to the genome to tell it what to do. So part of my characterization of systems biology would be that it is those networks of interaction. But now I come to the point I made just slightly earlier on, multi-level, because you see, we not only go from molecules to the networks of molecules within all of those membranous structures in cells, we also go to the fact that cells join to form great long strings and 
and sheets and uh, and various shaped structures like our muscles and our tendons and our hearts and so on, the tissues of the body, through to the whole organ, through, of course, to the systems of the organism and then to the organism as a whole. Now, I come to the real point. When I analysed many years ago the way in which heart rhythm occurs, I had to operate at at least two levels in order to work that out. One was the whole cell with its electrical potential and all the various parameters that depend upon the whole cell. The other was the individual proteins forming and carrying the electric current, which enables, because the heart beat in origin, its pacemaking activity is an electrical phenomenon. I worked out how that could interact with the cell as a whole to produce the rhythm, such that if you took all of those proteins out and you put those in a Petri dish, I like the Petri dish experiment, <laughs> put those into a Petri dish without the complete cell, there's no cardiac rhythm. You can have all of those molecules there. No rhythm unless you have a complete cell. So there can be feedback from the cell's full electric potential onto those proteins. So one of the, well, I'm praising myself here now, uh, one of the most spectacular early uses of a systems approach in biology, which is the working out of how the cardiac pacemaker uh, operates, which is my field, had to use multi-level interaction in order to understand what was going on. So I think the way forward is to try to work at a multi-level approach so that we take account of the fact that it's not only cells that tell their proteins what to do, um, but also tissues that interact so that the cells in this part of the tissue are talking to the cells in that part of the tissue and in the heart, for example, the cells in one part are talking, it's a complete syncytium, in fact, a complete connected network of cells that spread the wave of excitation all the way through them. Yeah, I think uh, I mean, everything you articulated about systems biology, it's fascinating. And at the same time, I guess I'm hung up on the terrifying, I think is the right word, complexity of how to do the research when just at one level, I mean, the potential interactions among molecules in a cell, oh my goodness. And then you say, well, okay, deal with that and don't forget that there's uh, populations and communities and entire ecosphere that you might want to consider. I mean, Dennis, what, what do we do? What we do is we become physiologists. <laughs> now, I'll tell you what physiologists are very good at. We're in agreement there. You've, you've definitely got art on that stage. I'm on page with you. Well, you see, what physiology is good at is, is making sense out of incomplete data. Now, that's saying something, quite a claim. But, you know, it's not far from the truth. Alan Hodgkin and Andrew Huxley, who worked out the nerve impulse, that was about 1952. They produced their equations, famous equations, for the nerve impulse. They got them the Nobel Prize in 1963. What were they doing during the war? They were employed in radar. And precisely on the ground, that what you get in early radar particularly, you know, you get those rather faint images, something over there. And it was the skill of the physiologist in drawing conclusions from incomplete data, from data that wasn't absolutely definite. Now, why do we have that skill? We have to, because we couldn't do physiology without it. We couldn't be operating um, at the level which we often uh, operate at, say, the whole muscle or the whole tissue or the whole organ, if we did not have that skill. Otherwise, it's vastly too complicated. Is it possible to come up with the title of that uh, grand grant proposal, as it were, uh, to serve as a rallying cry for the group. And, and what I'm thinking about is um, you know, something that's been proposed. You might have seen a, a recent book by Jeffrey West called Scale. is one of the, the, the originators of, of metabolic theory of ecology. I mean, is, is it possible to unite everyone under a sort of effort of going for those grand equations in biology? Yes, I, I have a lot of respect for mathematics in biology. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been doing what I've been doing for 50 years. Um, I... I, I like to encourage all of that, too. I think that the various approaches that could give us a little bit 
better grasp of the systems. Here I'm talking about systems in a slightly different sense, isn't it? There are many senses of system, of course, that's part of the difficulty. We're now talking about how you can characterize using clever mathematical approaches, some very, very complicated processes, and end up with an analysis which is a bit simpler than being shocked by the total number of combinations of interactions that there could be. But I'm also a bit doubtful about whether there's going to be a complete mathematization of biology in the way that you could say there's a complete mathematization of physics. And if some of the claims of the theoretical chemists are correct, a complete mathematization of chemistry. And I think the difficulty is that too much in biology is serendipitous, back to stochasticity again. And so, okay, you'll have to do some very clever mathematics to incorporate that stochasticity, and I, <laughs> I wish good luck to people others who try to do that. I do recognize also, though, that although I had a period when I wasn't too bad at mathematics. After all, that's what got me being chosen by the faculty at Oxford to examine a particular thesis. Um, <laughs> the fact is that I, I don't think I'm any longer good enough to do that kind of mathematics. So I cheer from the sidelines as the um, those that have got better mathematical skills have a go at seeing what they can do. Whether they'll succeed, I don't know. We'll have to see. But you raised a a very important question, is there something, a kind of banner that we can gather around? Um, I've just been at a big congress of the physiological sciences, it's, it's for yearly, annual, uh, not annual, for annual, <laughs> for yearly cycle of world congresses of physiological sciences. And one of our missions, which we um, produced a big report on at that congress was the mission to return physiology to center stage. That's the quote, as it were. Now, I think that it's conceivable that the world of physiology can find a way back onto center stage, partly because of what we said earlier on about rethinking evolutionary biology. You see, if you really believe that it's all stochasticity followed by natural selection, physiology has no role other than to explain why natural selection succeeds in selecting A rather than B. There's a physiological reason for that. But it's got no role at all in the process that leads to that variation in the first place. But if what I'm saying is correct, and I'm not alone now in saying this by any means, um, then physiology does have a role go back to that guided process of stochastic variation, seeking, as it were, for a solution to a challenge from the environment, so you've got a complete feedback loop there, that is a physiological process. And that is what I think partially guides evolution. Now, if we're back in business as contributing as I think we should. Take maternal effects, for example, that pass down generations. The fact that if you have babies that are born too small to mothers that were starved, as happened, for example, in the starvation winter in uh, Holland in 1942, you can follow that down through the generations and find that the children and the grandchildren are, are affected. And now they're getting to the third generation, of course, um, to see that. These are physiological processes. They're grand um, problems that we have to face in relation to understanding the influence of environment or health and disease and how much of that is transmitted. And I think, therefore, physiology is very much in this newer view of evolutionary biology. I think it's very much in contention. Well, Dennis, I, I can't let you go, and, and we've touched on it a little bit, so if, if you feel that you've said your piece, we'll understand. But do um, you think we're in or entering a golden age of biology? Are we going to look back in 50 years and, and 
decide this was a special time? I think we are. I think we're at a very exciting time. I think this is one of the best times to be in biology. I mean, my message to the young people is that there are fantastic opportunities now. I think, you see, that for about 70 years, we were in a bit of a straitjacket. Yes, the modern synthesis, that was the synthesis of evolutionary biology back in 1942 with Julian Hux's book of that title, The Modern Synthesis, it was brilliant. And it spawned population genetics. It produced a quantification of that kind of field of biology. But, you know, theories that are 70 years old deserve a bit of revisiting. <laughs> you know, what theory in physiology would we... Um, not have revisited in a period. <laughs> now, I'm joking a little bit. Um, I can I can tell you the answer that my colleagues who are much more classical neo-Darwinists would say, oh, Dennis, we've absorbed all kinds of new things, you know, genetic drift and various forms uh, of um, ways in which genomes can get reorganized. So we will take Barbara McClintock's work and say, you know, that's all right. Those are big mutations. They're not small mutations. Mm-hmm. I will say to them, well, but that's what, you know, your original theory was that it was. See, what I think has happened is that progressively they have actually expanded the theory. But they're not too good at admitting that that has changed the theory and the original one as formulated by August Weissman uh, all those years ago at the end of the 19th century is is incorrect. And I think we should say it's incorrect. And I don't mind whether people want to call whatever they develop out of this um, one thing or another. I don't think we need to get stuck on names, but I think there are some exciting new trends. Incidentally, that was the title of a big meeting held here in the UK last November, which is just about published in an issue of the Journal of the Royal Society. So even major national academies have taken these issues very seriously. So exciting time to young people out there wondering whether to get into it. I think this is just the time. Well, Dennis, um, well, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Um, We really appreciate your time and your patience to uh, finally have worked out a uh, time that works for all of us. We'll we'll let you go and and maybe get some rest. Okay. Thank you. Thanks very much, Dennis. Special thanks to Matt Blois for editing and production help. Thanks also to Gerard Sepes, Roman Boisseau, Devin O'Brien, Steve Lane, Victoria Doloff, Haley Hansen, Holly Kilvitis, Travis Flock, Meredith Kernbach, Chloe Ramsey, Jeff Olberding, Lars Shonley, Cynthia Downs, and Suzanne Miller.